Hi, I'm Frankie Frayne, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made three low-budget feature films of varying success, and I went to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length projects on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the kinds of conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. Welcome back to Discount Film School. Uh, I'm sitting down with Mark Bell, um, who's currently the owner and editor of, uh, of Film Threat, which is uh, an online publication. It's been around for a long, long time. A lot of people know it from uh, the Chris Gore days. If anybody knows Chris Gore, uh, editor and writer of all things independent cinema. And, and uh, Mark, it started off as a, as a written publication, didn't it? Yeah, it actually, um, Chris started it in 85, I believe at Wayne State University, and it was just uh, it was a Xerox zine, um, you know, it just like went down to a copier, made copies of this scene, and printed it out, and that was kind of the first few issues of film. Through I think the first eight issues were put out that way, and then uh, from there he moved it to uh, L.A. and sold it to Larry Flint when it became like a kind of a more full fledged magazine. Mm. And when Flint bought, and that was the early nineties. Flint bought it, and that's when it became kind of the film threat most people know when they think of film threat in the print days. That's when it was covering like Tarantino and, and stuff like that. The early uh, the early film threat issues were more kind of the cinema transgression, uh, Richard Kern, Lydia Lunch, that sort of thing. And then you know after that it became more about kind of the independent boom that happened in the '90s at the same time. Right. And then at the uh, you know the end of the '90s, the the magazine kind of went away in '97. The website started up, and it's been a website ever since. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to think like if it feels like it was founded in the 90s because of that big kind of uh, right. uh, link later, Rodriguez, Tarantino, Kevin Smith, like that, right. that kind of Miramax boom of, of indie cinema. But, yeah, the, I guess there was in, in, in the mid 80s, um, like it's kind of fun to watch the evolution of, you know, to talk about like we write about independent cinema or we kind of we uh, monitor independent cinema right. um, means kind of different things during different eras it, it it means different things depending who you talk to today yeah um i mean i talk to and you you can probably understand this having made a film yourself mm -hmm. that you know um when people talk to me like i i see on uh for example twitter because i don't know why but i follow a lot of other film writers i think it's just one of those things where it's like you naturally follow your peer group but then you kind of kick yourself you're just like i don't want to i want to form my own opinions yeah right but uh I, you know i see a lot of things where people are are talking about, oh, there's no women in independent film or there's no this in independent film. Or there's no that in independent film. And I'm like, well, what independent film are you looking at? Because in the independent film world I live in, you know, there's tons of women making movies and there's tons of this and there's tons of that. And so m my feeling is like the, the independent film, there's just there's just difference in tiers of it. And I think probably the, the level of films and level, and I don't mean that in a, a disparaging way, but I just mean kind of like the, the grouping of films sure. that we're seeing now is probably more in keeping with those uh mid 80s to early 90s kind of run of things like the you have your indie stalwarts that are doing what they do every year and that's have been doing since the 90s but uh, most films that are being made today are kind of in that independent underground level and most people don't even know they exist yeah one, one thing i wonder is you know in the i feel like the the 70s kind of brought in a new a new time for independent cinema where uh, movies weren't making money anyway, so everybody was able to just start taking risks, right? Right. So, um, but but nevertheless, I mean, until 
until the 90s and even during the 90s, um, to make an independent film still meant to collect a lot of funds. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Trey Parker, Matt Stone's first movie was like a hundred thousand bucks. You know, like, right. like 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 stupid money compared to what people are making movies for today. And it's evolved into it was still you know uh, you, you, independent films were still made for some kind of a budget. And then right. as, as time has gone on, and and there were if if you actually ever saw them, if they saw the light of day, it was because they were good enough or or marketable enough or something for a studio to pick them up and show them to people. They right. they, they, they they were valid for exhibition in some format, and and now we're seeing you know it's almost like how do you even classify what independent film is when there's so much independent film making, and I I I wonder if that's um, a challenge for you guys. To, you know what 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 do you highlight when there's you know there's brilliant short films on Vimeo but that's the only place they exist um uh, and and there's you know lots of no budget movies at festivals and I mean are you finding that the 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 term independent film is kind of a, a broader net now well I mean I think I think the, if you look at kind of the term independent film you just look at the term independence anything kind of made outside of the whatever is the accepted status quo or or norm. And, and again, if you look at the tiers, like what is considered kind of independent film, that's kind of a mainstream accepted independent film is still those types of movies with budgets and casts, and, right. you know, and, and you could see in the theater and, and, you know, they play at certain huge festivals and you're not surprised that they're drawing all these people. But the, for me, independent filmmaking has always been about that kind of do it yourself. You know, I have a camera, I've got some friends, you know, some are skilled or maybe I've been doing this for years and I'm finally just going to tell them the story I want to tell or do something. So independent to me has always been just that independent. So I think more it's probably more easy to look at it for, I guess, kind of the level of the, a lot of the movies I look at is to kind of see them more as kind of underground. And it's not meant that they're subversive or I mean, some of them are, but it, it's just the idea of them being underground is it compared to the mainstream people, a lot of people don't know about them. So therefore they kind of are underground. So it's, it's still independent cinema, but um, yeah, I mean, independent cinema has almost become a genre it's, itself to a certain extent. And that was something that uh, Chris Gore, he made a, a movie, my big fat independent movie, right. which was a spoof on it. And a lot of people gave him shit. Cause they're like independent film isn't a genre. And it's like, well, to a certain extent it kind of is it, it kind of horror movies have certain things you expect to see independent films, at least around that time in the nineties had certain things you expected to see. Um, and to, even today, I mean, I, I, I could go down the list of, of how many movies I've, I've watched in <laughs> the last month that started with, a, you know, someone's girlfriend dumping them or a car accident tragically changing the uh, arc of a character. It's it, it's like it's a certain thing where it's like certain things are kind of common, but uh, the road trip movie. But um, at the same time, it's like how many different variations of any story. So it's but I do think independent film exists. I just think that. I think that kind of what is truly independent, and I don't mean this in a purity sense, but I mean like what's truly independent is is more stuff that a lot of people don't know exists. And uh, you kind of – it actually – it's kind of – it reminds me back in the 90s. Again, it, it all kind of it's, – it's cyclical. It all kind of comes back because I think a lot of it has to do with kind of the prosumer thing, right? So like you had the 70s, 80s, and you had the thing was – the real underground stuff was like eight millimeter. And if yeah. people had a little more money, it was 16. Right. But it, it was film and it was lower. And then uh, VHS tape came out and then it became about shooting on video and then, and tape trading. And, um, and then we had kind of the nineties and that was started to go away. 
but you know we still had people shooting on video and then we went to digital video and now we've hit like where digital video it used to be oh video will never be as good as film and now it's like well here we are yeah you know where where someone who doesn't know how to shoot a film can get a really good camera for really cheap and shoot something that really looks like a film <laughs> you know yeah yeah and, and i th- i think the broad audiences are starting to i th- i think that the i remember when i first started making so i'm 27 right i started making movies right. when i was like 13 14 years old right. and and i made uh sexually frank frank was my third kind of no budget feature right and um i remember yeah it was like i i it took a few years before they started talking about like these 24p cameras and that right. was going to that was going to change a lot of things for me um but I remember being hung up on like, you know, I, I've, I've got to I've got to make it so that it doesn't distract the viewer. I, it can't look so amateurish that they're focused on how amateurish it is the whole time. Right. It, it needs to. I remember being a little kid and thinking it needs to look like a real movie. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's been really interesting to watch that notion of what a real movie looks like completely change um, because right. the formats have grown. The formats are now more diverse um, and people are watching a lot more stuff. I mean, like the fact that YouTube takes time away from watching Netflix, right. um, uh, I, I think it moves the bar of what's acceptable for, you know, a broad audience to watch and it's going to be, oh, it kind- absolutely does. Yeah. 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 I mean, now, now you, you look at it, I mean, let's just point it out YouTube, um, or if it's not YouTube, let's say it's reality TV. I mean, it's all very formulaic. Exactly. So. Um, it, but it's funny because it moves the bar in a couple ways. It moves the bar in the sense of like what is uh, aesthetically okay and visually okay. And but at the same time, it's kind of like why that moves lower because people will accept kind of internet fare, which you didn't think anyone like. If you when you were making films, you know, even five six years ago, mm-hmm. you were thinking, oh my god, if this is pixelated even a little bit anywhere, people are going to freak out. Exactly. You know, I remember, you know, Blu-ray or even DVD before that and be like, oh, the blocks are all crushed and, you know, the jaggies are there and yeah. ah, this is awful. And people will be up in arms about it. And now, you know, like you're watching shitty films on YouTube and you're just Nobody like, cares. Oh. yeah, no one cares. It's like, you kind of like, oh, well, that's, that's the medium, you know, yeah. you accept it. And to be fair, YouTube's gotten a lot better. Yeah. Oh, um, it, it certainly has, but it, but it changed, it changed the way I think, people absorb things. And, and Mm -hmm. I think you can, I remember like the first Jackass movie was on, you know, standard def and it projected the theaters. Nobody gave a fuck. Right. Um, and, and since then, I I think what, what I've been seeing and certainly what I've read is, is that there's kind of this, um, there's not a lot of 10 to $20 million movies anymore. There's, there's really, uh, you know, affordable films for filmmakers. And then there's the tent poles and there's not a lot in between. And uh, at least that's what I've observed. Well, there's there's the argument right now, particularly this summer, that that's going to change a little bit. Yeah. Because um, as the bigger films uh, aren't doing super. Yeah. Didn't we just have three failures in a row, right? Like White, yeah. White House Down, Lone Ranger, and now Pacific Rim. And now Pacific Rim. Yeah. Um, it, it, but with those, it's like it's kind of – it's not a given just to do the, the big tentpole and make tons of money. Yeah. So I think what's going to happen is – or at least this is what's being rumored is that it's going to kind of – Studios are going to try and save their money and you either you either save your money and kind of kneecap the bigger movies and just make them for cheaper or you take more of a chance on those middle of the line movies. Right. Um, and and I mean, not to I mean, I'm, I'm right up there with other people. I was I haven't seen Pacific Rim yet, but I did watch Sharknado. You know <laughs> yes. what I mean? Yes. So like I'm, yep. I'm part of the problem. I'll, I'll admit to it right now. 
But for as much, I, mean, I think the idea is the same though for both of them, right? It was about having a fun experience. So I, I but I think one costs like the fraction, like a, a minuscule <laughs> amount yeah. compared to the other. And when you look at them, it looks that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my wife is not a big technical uh, film buff, but even she was watching Sharknado and being like, who, how did they make this? You know, <laughs> just was this an iTunes app? Like, how did like you had the tornado there? But it was it's one of those things where it's like it hit the it hit the fun mode. Right. And I think that studios are going to they're going to kind of. They're going to save their money because there's not enough. I mean, filmmaking's a risk in, in at every level. So it it's just uh, the ten poles used to be given. And the other thing is, too, these ten poles now are are very geek property driven. That's right. And um, I think I think we proclaim that the geeks inherited the earth maybe a little too soon. Yeah. You know, so I think much so we, that you can almost not even call it geek anymore. It's just pop, yeah. pop culture. Exactly. It um, it's like anything like geeks at a certain point. We're slowly becoming like. Uh, ska or swing dancing, yep. you know, like we, we, we had a really good run for, you know, a couple of years and, <laughs> and, uh, but now the things we love aren't making a lot of money anymore. Yeah. So, um, people are moving on. And the thing is I look at it too. It's kind of, this is kind of the, kind of the philosophical stuff that's been on my mind the last few days. Sorry if I'm rambling. No, please. But, this is great. But, uh, it's kind of like, uh, the nostalgia of us growing up, right? Like we had transformers as a kids playing yep. with them with toys. So all of a sudden now we have movies where transformers are in movies and that's like the big stuff making money. And that's our, that's our age group that's driving this. Right. But we're not going to be the generation that drives culture in that way for very long. You know, like we're, we, we're going to have a 10, 20 year window maybe. And then the next group's going to come up. So what's the next generation Kind of like, what's their nostalgia going to be? Right. It's going to be like, they're going to remember iPods and iPads and stuff like that. And like, how does that, what's that going to translate to as far as like pop culture and cinema when, when they're all in control? Because that's what it is. Like really, you know, everything, all the properties we remember as kids is kind of what is driving pop culture right now. But when we're supplanted as we will be, um, it's kind of funny, like what's going to come next. So it. I feel like our heyday is already starting to wane based on how these huge pop culture properties are starting to kind of trip over themselves. Yeah. And it's kind of like how, how will being nostalgic about some of this stuff, um, manifest, right? Uh, it's, it's kind of fun to, I mean, you know, already I feel like E-Bomb's world is, is nostalgic, right? Right. Right. And that, that was like six years ago, <laughs> you know, but it's, well, how doesn't it feel like Twitter has been around for forever? Yeah. But it was, it's what, like a year and a half, two years, maybe longer yeah, like, than that, but no, it's, it's like, it's like five or six. Okay. I don't know. It might not even be five. But nobody six, gave but... a fuck until maybe like two years ago. Yeah. That was the weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Mark, are you a filmmaker? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I say, I say, yeah, I, I guess it's it's a past tense. I haven't made anything in forever. Um, I was uh, I made my own film ages ago, and then which no one will ever see because it sucks. Ah, oh, come on! But uh, no, no, it, it's it's bad. <laughs> but it, but it was shot like I mean, this was back you know shooting sixteen millimeter, and it was black and white reversal, and it was like, oh my god, pie! That's a really great idea. I want to try that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're like, I have not remotely the talent of Darren Aronofsky in his beginnings. <laughs> it looks so you know? simple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's like that, a it's like a nice like dish, you know. You're like, oh, I think I could make that. Yeah, and and that's kind of and that's funny too because that's kind of the trap. I just I just wrote a review about a movie that's really well done and and uh, it, it's total no budget and it's it's a, an apocalyptic kind of movie, but it, it's totally just a, a guy in his hotel or uh, his apartment or a couple people in a mm-hmm. car, but it's done so well. And I'm like, people are going to see this and they're going to be like inspired, be like, if he can do this, I can do this. And I'm like, and I understand that feeling. I get it. But yeah, 
not everyone can pull this off. Like this person obviously knows how to use a camera. They knew how to frame. They knew how to edit. Like everything about this works because of the craftsmanship more so than I have one guy in a room. Yeah. And the craft, so, it, the craftsmanship is working subconsciously. And what you're right. seeing is kind of the, just the, the simple mechanics right on the surface. Yeah, exactly. What was, what's that movie called? Uh, that movie's called desolate. And I just, I mean, I think the review just came up oh, like, cool. it's just on the site on filmthreat.com. But, uh, yeah, I mean, beyond my own stuff, I worked for, uh, a while as a script supervisor. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that, that segued into post-production supervisor and, I've done a lot of editing stuff off and on when film threat DVD was a, was a, a film line when we were putting out movies. Um, I edited a lot of special features for, for, you know, a handful of the, uh, the films on the line. So it, I mean, I, I, I've made films, so I've worked in film. Um, but I had, like I said, I haven't, cur- I haven't done anything recent. Now I think mostly what I do is I dick around in Photoshop <laughs> that's, that's 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 my new fun thing to do besides like writing about movies and like the actual job part of it um i mostly just play in photoshop that's great um did, uh, so what what was your um what was your entrance what was what was your in for filmmaking were you always a, a film kid or you know what made you want to pick up a camera and and what kind of led into um eventually post-production and film reviewing well you know it's uh it's kind of like um it's like I was talking about earlier. It's kind of be inspired, and and I don't think my story is going to be all that unusual. I worked at a video store. Yep. And watched. Isn't that, a bunch isn't that of funny? How many video yeah. store kids there are? Well, I mean, like video stores are great. Like that's where we get Tarantino from. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, it's uh, it's video stores are wonderful. I kind of miss it. Like uh, again, here's another digression, real quick. We were watching Netflix the other day, and I was telling, I was telling my wife about Watership Down and what a horribly violent cartoon that was. <laughs> and she's like, is that on Netflix? And I was like, oh, I don't, let's look. And this is Netflix streaming, by the way. So check Netflix streaming's not there. And I just had this like that gut punch feeling of like, I hate the cloud. Like yeah. the cloud's supposed to have everything and it doesn't, you know, this would have been in the fucking video store. I would have made sure. Exactly. And then I'm like, is this, is this in Barnes and Noble? And no. And it's like, so it just becomes this whole thing where it's like, there's something to be said for having a video store that I, has like a inventory that's grown up over 10 years I or 20 you, years. I, I still have this big, stupid wall of DVDs and Blu-rays that I get, yeah, me too. That, that I get mocked for because they're all going to rot or whatever, but they, there, there's something to be said for, you know, if you, I want to be able to watch a movie any fucking time I want. Um, mm-hmm. I want to be able to pull it off the shelf, watch it anytime I want. And, uh, the cloud is, is an ever changing thing where that, that title can come off for a little while. I don't like that. Right. Uh, it's, it's really great for let's, let's pick a movie and just watch it right, right, right now. But I'm a big, um, and I regard my work similarly, which is like I want to be able to um, have it in some kind of archivable format um, that, it, especially in the case of DVD and Blu-ray, documents the entire experience. You can go there, get your commentary, right. the special features, everything I produce, not just for the movie, but around the movie, all there on a nice disc. I, that really appeals to me. It feels like I'm done making this film because of this disc. And um, right. yeah, and cloud doesn't really offer me that. No, and, and the cloud is kind of like... Uh... You know, if, if you use the Netflix comparison, Netflix is kind of like the big, the big box, the Best Buy or the the blockbusters, that yeah. sort of thing. And and my tastes have always run more towards what a mom and pop video store runs with a lot of the kind of obscure stuff that you can kind of fill your store with. So like for me, it's always since the cloud has been popping up. Now that it's 
more mainstream. It's just again, it's it's uh, the things I want to watch are still not available. Yep. So it's still, and that's a that's also a festival crush. Like you'll see so many great movies over the course of the year at festivals, and you'll be like, oh man, where do these things show up? It's a little better now. In fact, it's a lot better now. Yeah. But um, because now they're all on VOD. But uh, <laughs> it's all. <laughs> It, it makes no sense. They're not there. They're there, but they are. It's it's yep, it's yep. messed up. But uh, yeah. So anyway, I mean, I worked at a video store, and um, I mean, and this is around the time, you know, Clerks came out, and Clerks hit video. Sure. And it, again, it's like, yeah, this it's not uncommon, but like prior to prior to a movie like Clerks, I think a lot of people, myself included, um, I had this feeling that filmmaking was like magic. Yeah. Like and and that. Not that you couldn't learn filmmaking, but just that the people who did it were like almost like kings and queens of like medieval times that were ordained by God. They're not you. you know, they're like, not me. Yeah. 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 Finger came down and said, this person's a filmmaker. Spielberg's a filmmaker. Right. You know, you're not a filmmaker. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I was living in New Hampshire at the time. So, you know, Northeast is not necessarily at least that stage of it. North, North New Hampshire is not where you think of a filmmaking mecca. So at least we had a video store. Yeah. But uh, that kind of that was kind of the beginning of it, and you know I went away to to college in uh, Tacoma, Washington, and um, it was there that you know they they get you right out the gate because uh, you walk you walk on campus and they're like, hey sir, uh, you, you're a freshman, right? And you're like, yes. And they're like, would you like a credit card? And you're like, of course. And then you immediately go and buy yourself a nice video camera with the credit card. Yeah, of course. And uh, and I mean, for most of the days, kind of on the college campus, I was just filming stuff with this video camera. And it just kind of from there it was all right. Now I'm I'm not really enjoying college anymore. I was a studio art major. I was like, uh, I'm going to go in extreme debt and wind up being an art teacher, and that's not what I want to do. So um, I wound up going up to Seattle and working on film sets for free, whatever they would, you know, throw at me, whatever they would do. And in that Seattle. Kinda, why Seattle? Yeah, Seattle? Well, it's just because it's close to Tacoma. Tacoma didn't really have a lot oh, going there. So there were um, there were studio productions that were shooting in Seattle. I mean, it was mostly independent stuff. It was the kind of stuff where we work eighteen hour days. I see. And yeah. I mean, the uh, the commercial stuff was going, but it was literally commercials. So um, you kind of had to. It's not that you had to be in a union because eventually I was working up there, and I was. I've never been in a union, but the I would because I was not in a union. Um, people started. I, uh, production started to be dissuaded from using me mm-hmm. because uh, there there was only a few script supervisors in Seattle at that point, and uh, I was starting to kind of climb the ranks. I'd been independent film, and I was kind of I was starting to kind of break into the more commercial stuff. Um, but because I wasn't in a union, um, I was taking work away from oh yeah the people who were, and that that wasn't accepted very well. And so since they had, I don't have names or anything, but it it was just one of those things where it's like as the new guy. It just didn't work out that way. How does somebody fall into script supervision on a, on a set? I, I I have no idea. Like I'm I'm sitting here. I'm trying I'm I'm trying to think of like how I got the first script supervision gig, and it it, it was literally like I was doing PA work, and I was assistant to the director, but the director was like, I don't really need an assistant, so go help over there. Mm-hmm. So then I was like a grip, and then. I was like, the grips are like, hey, you know, the camera guy needs help. So next thing you know, you're helping the camera guy and you're just kind of absorbing all this stuff. And sooner or later, you're handed a clipboard. Yeah. And, you know, asked, OK, this is kind of script supervision. This is what we need you to do. And um, I, I can also write super tiny. And uh, at the time, I mean, it, it started out. Yeah. It, well, I mean, it started out being able to write extremely detailed notes and matching it up with uh, foot links for film. 
And then that changed to writing extremely detailed notes matching up with time codes for video. Um, and then that eventually changed to extremely lengthy notes that are even lengthier because people don't call cut anymore because it's digital. Right. And you just keep shooting, <laughs> you know. And so next thing you know, your notes become – and um, it's funny. Me and uh, a really good friend of mine, Dan Mervish, um, co-founded Slamdance. We were talking about this the other day. We always found it odd. Like the script supervisor is an important position, but the script supervisor is the editorial position on set. That's right. Because they're keeping track of coverage and everything else. And and it, I, I feel like it used to be important, and it, it never it, it never made sense that the editor wasn't on set. So the script supervisor has to make all these notes, and then someone has to interpret these notes. And that's yeah. how you go from script supervisor to editor to post-production supervisor. You wind up interpreting your own stuff. Yeah. I mean, if I was an editor, I'd definitely be like, give me those notes from the script supervisor because yeah. they're, they're going to they're gonna give me, you know, essentially ins and outs of when a lot, when a lot of this stuff, uh, it stops being relevant. You know, the footage stops right. being relevant to, to the edit. Yeah. I mean, like I haven't done it in years. And, and like I said, now that we've gotten to the point where people just don't call cut anymore and they point their cameras That's in every I mean. direction, yep. like I cannot, I cannot imagine how annoying the role must be right now. You know, someone must just sit down and be like, and I actually, you know, maybe it simplifies it. Like maybe now what you're doing is because you're shooting from every angle, maybe now you're going back to the two shot, Yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's, and it's kind of back more to kind of the filmic idea where it wasn't so many notes uh, with digital. I mean, you'd be like, okay, take 18 has a bit of a shrug, you know, it's. <laughs> yeah. For for anybody who who is new to filmmaking, which I, it, it's probably worth describing the, the role <laughs> of a script supervisor. It's essentially the. Uh, to to note um, what lines and what bits of the script have been shot and what still need to be shot. And if there's something, if there's a detail missed, point it out to the AD so the AD can communicate that to the crew. So in other words, um, it's it's really simple in in this, you know, in a complicated set or even a not complicated set while you're getting all of your coverage to completely forget one line that actually is crucial uh, right. to, to the plot of the scene. And that's what the script supervisor has to keep their eye on the ball for. But what I would, I would imagine digital makes it difficult if, if they're not calling cut in as much as you don't know, yes, lines have been said, but you don't know what's been shot and what hasn't been shot. Right. That would, that would um, be my guess. Well, and the, and the other thing too is, uh, it was a lot, obviously before, and a lot of it was budgetary, but a lot, you know, a lot of it was resources. Uh, you had to have your shots decided on ahead of time. And everything. So you, you knew which shot you had a shot list. You knew what you were getting or at least what you were aiming for. And you yeah. knew kind of what your coverage had to be. So as you point out, like, yeah, it's probably hard to tell kind of what they're shooting. If you're a script supervisor, and you're not looking at a monitor or you're not behind the camera to see kind of what is being shot. Then, yeah, it it, it could get lost in that sense. Um, so it I think it it's probably more more complicated now. But at the same time, there's probably simplicity to it because you just kind of a assume that they shoot in every direction uh, i i can't imagine getting well and the other thing is too is like i can't imagine what the script looks like because uh, another thing about script super supervision is as you're as you're tracking it you have a copy of the script yes and you have a pencil or a pen i usually used a pencil and as it goes you're basically you run the pencil down the line so as you cover a line in the script you, you make a mark over that line in the script and you go down in a in a vertical fashion and you just do this. And for every take, you do this until you have a script that looks like a tiger attacked it. Yeah, right. <laughs> but like if you're doing if you're doing multiple takes in one in one set in one set, it's like it's got to be just extremely confusing to look at those lines because like they're all of a sudden they're going to be broken up and this that. I mean, not that if you ever looked at that script 
aesthetically that it, it looked pleasing to begin with when it's covered with all that. But I imagine now, yeah. See now, now I'm 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 scared. I don't think I want to go back into script supervising. <laughs> Did you have like a? Are, do you have a great eye for um, for continuity and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was I was a script supervisor, but I'm also um, a backseat driving prick. Um, right. <laughs> and I think, I think, it, I think it comes out. I think if you read, uh, my reviews at film threat, I think you, if you can, you read them, you kind of see someone, I, I feel like you get the impression that there's someone sitting behind you in an editing room being like, well, maybe if you did this, that's kind of the way I am on set. And it depends on the set too. I mean, it sounds, that's why I asked the question initially. It sounds, it sounded like a filmmaker reviewing my film. Right. Which was, and, which was kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't, I don't necessarily feel to be a film writer. You have to be a filmmaker, but I Not think that if you. If you are, it adds a little bit, not value, but it's just like you kind of have a perspective. Like I can see something like we were we were talking about this with um, with room 237. Right. We were mm-hmm. at a panel. Um, I say we me and a contributing editor for Film Threat, Don Lewis. We we're at the Stanley Film Festival, which was about the Stanley Hotel in Colorado. And it was pretty much shining focus because that's the hotel where Stephen King went to that inspired him to write The Shining. So we're there and we have, you know, Stanley Kubrick's assistant is on the panel and then a couple conspiracy theorists are on the panel and and then the the documentary maker behind Room 237 is on the panel and they're talking about all these things, all these continuity issues in The Shining and how like the the conspiracy theorists are like, well, that means this. It means like Kubrick faked the moon landing and all this other stuff. And uh, for me, like I was telling Don, I'm like, whenever I see stuff like that, I don't I don't do the all oh, the mise en scene. This means something like I don't come at it from a theoretical Ah, uh, they 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 put that chair in the wrong place because they want you to think about like how your your position in life has changed over the course of the scene. Right. Like I'm like, oh man, someone missed that chair. Yeah, you know, like it it, it comes from a very different place, and so you don't come from a studies point of view. You actually come from a production point of view. Yeah, no, I mean, like I wouldn't, wouldn't and it's funny too because uh, Kubrick's assistant was saying stuff like that on the panel. He was like, yeah, no, Stanley Kubrick was a skill, uh, a a very he loved still photography. Yes. So he composed shots and then if they didn't work for him, he recomposed them. Now, whether or not they cut together later, we found out. But it was never like I'm trying to say something. It was like when he had the camera a certain way, he wanted it to look a certain way and he played with the frame because he figured no one would pay attention to like a chair that was off center a second ago in the frame. Like he thought that wouldn't be the most important thing. But of course now – we're at the stage where people can own movies and rewatch them and rewatch them and rewatch them. And you figure when The Shining first came out, it's not like people had it at home initially and were watching it all the time or could freeze frame it and like get a really good view. It's like we're at this stage now where everything's kind of destroyed and dissected. I mean, imagine again, ranting. Imagine if uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out today, right? Mm-hmm. There'd be like an everything wrong with Raiders video. Yeah. Like a week later, it's 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 a. It's a little insane at this point how we consume and, and destroy things. But uh, it's 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 a the the culture is a little, or at least the 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 online reviewer culture is a lot more. Um, they they have kind of stronger, more dissecting analyses, and they can they can really articulate their points by making their own videos mm-hmm. and then sharing them. And because everybody's already kind of really interested in what's out that week. Uh, uh, everybody cares and watches them. It's kind of interesting. It's, 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 um, sometimes a little sick, but it's also kind of nice in a, in a way. Yeah. I mean, like I, I'll admit, I really enjoy those, uh, everything wrong with yeah, videos, fun. Yeah. but at, to a certain extent, I, it, I can imagine if I was a kid, um, and you know, I just seen Raiders and I loved Raiders 
and I was really enjoying it. And then all of a sudden I saw that video, which is very possible nowadays. It would it would take the wind out of my sails. Yeah, you're like, oh, you pissed on my movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it wouldn't and and so I can kind of understand why people get so angry when something they love gets, you know, kind of taken apart like that. Yeah. Um I, I'll never understand, you know, death threats over a film review. Um, at least ones that don't come from the filmmakers. Right, right. Like that that to me like, makes a little more sense. Like <laughs> yeah. people People who haven't seen a movie getting so upset with a reviewer that, you know, because like the uh, the Dark Knight Rises. I thought that's what you were going to say. Yep. Yeah. The Dark Knight Rises. There was there was death threats because um, of some negative reviews before people had even seen it. Right. And uh, which I have issues with that aspect of it, too. I mean, like I understand people want to get reviews to kind of know whether or not to see stuff. But I also don't know that that's how things work anymore. Yeah, I think a lot of us preform our opinions and are going to see something or not see something anyway. And reviews kind of become part of the conversation about like, you know, oh, this person thinks similarly or doesn't think similarly or has a good point. And it, it's supposed to be conversational. It's not supposed to be dictating what I do or don't do. You're kind, so, of, you're kind of reminding me of of you, what you said a few minutes ago about, you know, we, we thought that filmmakers were preordained or, you know, predetermined to be filmmakers. And I think I think film reviewers were sort of the same way, which was like you had, you know, the the Gene Siskels and you, you had like like five or six that you right. were aware of. And um, and you read those reviews that week and it was all just there were fewer films, fewer people talking about them mm-hmm. and a lot more just like passive interest and now everybody's a filmmaker everybody's a reviewer uh and it changes we we all know how that changes the way we consume independent art but it's really interesting to watch watch it change the ways we consume popular art the way you know it changes the way we consume the dark knight rises uh there's a lot more people talking about i always make the argument that and this is a whole bigger topic but i always make the argument that um that torrenting um, or, or, you know, bootlegging films actually creates a larger culture of consumption that it makes more mm-hmm. people interested in more movies. Um, no. and, and it ultimately translates to dollars and, and at least in the really big budget cases. Yeah, no, I mean it, it exactly in the really big budget cases. I know, I know enough on the, the smaller level that have, have had their stuff torrented where it's been a case of it'll fuck you. Well, it, yeah, and it depends on the perspective, too, because some will look at it from, oh, my God, I just got fucked out of the money I could have made on this movie. And then there's the other filmmaker that's like, oh, my God, I have an audience that's going to be so big for my next movie. Yeah, right. And so it, it, it depends on kind of the perspective you're willing to take. Both could be right and both could be horribly wrong. It's a little you know? bit of a first taste is free industry nowadays, though. Oh, it's absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, real quick to go back to kind of like the, the the film writers is ordained too. I mean, a lot of that, a lot of those uh, early film writers, they either came from another discipline in journalism and they had schooling for it, right? Um, and they were either like critics of another sort, maybe book critics, or or maybe they were they had to cover like the town hall news or something like yeah, that. Yeah, writers, and, yeah, yeah. And someone was like, here, you know, go see Easy Writer, right? You know what I mean? Go be, uh, you know, write about film this week and. Um, it kind of it kind of went from there and and through experience and through study and everything else i mean they just had i think they were more uh scholarly period in the beginning um i think now we're kind of at the stage where obviously anyone who has an opinion can start a website you know convince a studio to send them free stuff yeah and then uh you know hey i'm a film writer and you know within a year I'm I'm seeing them, you know, at a film festival and they're like, hey, you know, you see my website. And and again, there's if the, the democratization of 
filmmaking exists, why shouldn't the democratization of film writing exist? Absolutely. And it's happened. But yeah, but just as people are kind of like, oh, well, where's the gatekeepers for the quality of, of these democratized films? I say, well, it's the same thing for the writing yep. too. You know, it's like, I see some pretty, pretty horrible movies out there and I see some pretty horrible writing out there. It's just kind of, um, it is what it is. I don't, but I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, let's let's close the door and not let any but new let's people. Let's curate in. this too. Yeah. No, because I mean, like, it, you have to you have to build your voice and you have to build your writing style. And if you don't have a lot of practice ahead of time, I mean, this is your practice. This is how you get it. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to mess up. Um, but it, I mean, it's part of it. It's just, um, and everybody goes into it with a different with a different goal, right? Like right now, there's the big the big uh, brouhaha about the was it Leanne Spider Baby. Mm. or something writer uh horror writer and she um, basically was writing articles about horror films by copy and pasting bits and pieces from other articles about those movies from mm. other writers and other websites and magazines and then calling it her own <laughs> so like and a she mashup and she just got called out this week and um like there's a whole brouhaha going about that and i look at something like that and i'm like well obviously the goal of this writer was not to be a good writer Right. Because if your if your goal is to be a good writer, then you write. You're gonna write. Yep. If your goal is to be seen as a writer, you're gonna cut corners, and you'll plagiarize. You'll take stuff from other people that's you know better written because you just want to you just want to be seen a certain way. You don't yep. necessarily want to be that. Right. And I, I think there's a risk to actually wanting to be something. Um, so I think that's kind of where we're at with with that thing. But I think that that's not maybe the plagiarism thing is rare, but uh, I don't think that that's all that new people saying like, Oh, I'm a film writer. And just like, I'm a filmmaker. It's like, well, yeah. Are you making films? Well, no, but (laughs) I think the point is there, there, there's, um, the filmmakers and film reviewers are, are suddenly not so different. Yeah. Well, yeah. And and if they ever were, you know, I I think if they ever were, yeah. Yeah. If they ever were, but it's, it's, it's now it's, it's, it's even more readily apparent, but, uh, you know, the same, the same kind of tension still exists. Um, the same kind of feeling. Cause again, yeah, if there was any um, magical moment where people thought that a, a film critic's opinion is kind of ordained on high or like, Oh my God, they like this. This means something to a wider audience. I think that it, it's very clear that it doesn't not that those examples again, haven't existed throughout history of critics adoring a movie that audiences hated or vice versa. It's kind of like, it's all subjective. You can yeah. either, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's, it's a very, very subjective subjective <laughs> job to have. Um, and, and like, and people, and people don't like to look at film writing this way, but the thing about film writing is it's as much to a certain extent, if you're, if you're putting into it, it's as much an art as any other art out there, right? You're putting your, you're putting your thoughts and your feelings down yeah, and you're, and you're saying, Hey, this is how I feel about this. You're creating, and, you're creating something that's expressive. Right. And then you wait for Feeder. now the commenters yep. to rip you apart. Right. Which are the critics' critics, and a lot of these video reviews are downright. I mean, like the uh, you know, inarguably art. I mean, some you know, like the Plinket, yeah. the, the Star Wars Plinket reviews. Oh, those were, those were great. Those were like short films. Yeah, like, I, I think they're themselves. the. I think they're the best things that, like, if there was a reason for the prequels to have ever been made at all, it's so right. that that could exist. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because they're far more entertaining than those movies. Oh, they're fucking fantastic. Um, so uh. You're, how do you transition away from uh, uh, being an on-set production guy and getting starting to get involved? You started to get involved in Film Threat in the 90s, yes? I actually I got involved with Film Threat actually in the early 2000s. Oh, okay. So um, 
it was it was the the end of the 90s early 2000s when i met dan mervish um again i was up in seattle working production and he was part of this uh the seattle film festival it has this thing called fly filmmaking and it's uh it's basically like a 48 hour film film challenge but this one's over the course of five days instead so you you, you write film edit screen five days yep and he was a part of it, and at that point, I knew obviously a bunch of production in Seattle, and they needed a script supervisor for his short team. So they had me come on, and I was his script script supervisor. And uh, Mervish and I kind of hit it off, became really good friends, and that led to me. Leave. And at that point, I was having trouble finding work in Seattle because of the the union issue I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, that led to me going to Slamdance that next year and working with Slamdance, the Slamdance Film Festival, as a as a videographer, basically, I you know I videotaped the Q and A's, and then I you know brought them back, and we got everything together, and and then working with Slam Dance, I think I did that for like two two and a half years. Was that is that like a year round? If you're staff on a fest on a fairly sizable festival like that, are you working year round or just during you know the January month? No, because Slam Dance is a sizable festival that's not remotely sizable year round. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh it's uh they have most of their most of their. Uh, screening staff programming staff are um you know filmmakers who have gotten their films in the slam dance volunteer programmers a lot of that and they have their core group that makes the big decisions just like any big festival but uh for the most part as far as like people who are paid year-round um there's only like one or two yeah right and so i wasn't i wasn't year-round with that but after slam dance that over that next year uh dan shot his next movie which was a, a real estate musical called open house and I came out to L.A. To, to be a part of – yeah, I know. I came out to L.A. to be a part of that, and I never left because after we wrapped, Dan asked me to stay on as post-super. And so I stayed on, and next thing you know, I'd been living in L.A. for almost half a year, hmm. basically in his his extra room, which was the editing suite, um, sleeping you know, in the corner, that sort of thing. Yeah. And um, – but I mean – and. That year was my last year. The the next year was my last year at Slamdance. And when my time wrapped up with Slamdance, when I, I quit, got fired. Uh, <laughs> because cause they, they fired me the day before I quit uh, <laughs> on the phone. Like, like literally, like we looked at the hour scale. It was like an eight-hour difference. It's like if I'd have been able to get in in the morning, I was going to go quit. At least you were on I the was, same page. Oh, we were totally on the same page at that point. <laughs> um, as as we, we've joked about, Dan and I have joked about with Slamdance – uh, and it had nothing to do with Dan anyway. But as Dan and I have joked out with Slam Dance, really three years. Three yeah. years people run their course at Slam Dance, if not sooner. And yeah. I was I was firmly in that camp. Um and and uh that's when Chris Gore at the time needed some help. He was writing his uh I think it was the third edition of the film festival book. And he needed some help just with a researcher, someone to kind of go into the database and kind of clean out the old festivals and and kind of get the updated info because again, this wasn't all available on the internet where you could just go to a website and everything was sitting there. It was like a precious had, resource. Yeah. You still had to go look stuff up and be like, Hey, what are your dates? That sort of thing. And, and it was, you know, tedious work, but yeah, uh, it any, was work. If anybody doesn't know, Chris also, uh, it, it has been a, uh, uh, one of the staple resources for, uh, info on what festivals, where, uh, their submission deadlines, um, the kinds of films they're looking for, the kinds of films they've programmed in the past. Um, you know, he's kind of been the uh, the manual in a lot of ways. And he was – I think he had something to do with official re- – he was at least interviewed a number of times for that that documentary, Official Rejection. Yep. 
Um, so yeah, he's he, that, that's another thing he's kind of well known for. Yeah, the the Ultimate Film Festival Survival Guide. That's what it's called. Yep, and uh, all four editions. Um, but uh, it was yeah, I was working on that third edition, mm-hmm. and um, basically we we kind of we enjoyed working together. And so that kind of came on. He was like, hey, do you want to work for Film Threat? And at, at this time, we had the Film Threat DVD line. He's like, do you want to work for Film Threat? And do you want to kind of do work for the DVD line, eventually run the DVD line, um, which I did through to its death. I want to know more about that, the Film Threat distributing films. Um, well, I, the Film Threat did it in the magazine days on VHS. Yep. And um, basically, it was the same idea. They the idea was to take these films that we're watching that are kind of smaller, and and do a DVD run with them too. And it was assisted self distribution. So we used our name to get a bunch of deals at like replicators and stuff like that. And then the filmmakers paid a a fee, a small fee, to pay for the replication. And then it was it was shared um, revenue of what sold from there, whether it went to Netflix or this, that, and the other thing. I mean, you could probably actually make money doing it back in the when DVD was something people actually bought. Right, but we we did it right at the end of that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like we probably I think I think Film Threat DVD probably missed the window by about a year. I think because at that point at that point you're looking at 2003. Yeah, and things are already starting to wind down, slow down. Yep. Um, and it was a sort of thing where. You know, we wanted to pay for every sale of a DVD. We wanted to pay the filmmakers between, I think, it was six to eight dollars. Mm-hmm. And if you had a if you had a, a company like Netflix buying, because this was before streaming, like Netflix would buy your movies. So you know, you could actually make money as an independent filmmaker selling your movie to Netflix. Right. Um, I don't know how it is now, but a lot of the filmmakers wanted to see their stuff in Walmart, and Walmart wanted to pay a penny, and they wanted to throw these movies in their ninety nine cent bin. Yeah. Um, you know, or make some other insane markup on them that, you know, but they, they won't buy them from us for, you know, more than like 25 cents or some, something I've seen. And we're like, well, it costs more than 25 cents to make the disc, but <laughs> well, this is the problem with, I mean, you know, I've, I've, um, I've been down, I've had, I have my own distribution s- stories for each feature. I'm uh, sure like the, the first one was acquired by trauma and then, uh, the next one, I had a producer's rep that that ended a little ugly, and then just right. re- just recently, I um, it, it was all looking pretty sweet, and then like it's it, it's available at all these retailers, and then it suddenly like it just didn't ship to them. Uh, they never actually right. pr- produced them. Um, right. so they're they're it's it's always hilarious. But I I just recently on one of these pods, I spoke to um this gentleman who used to work as a uh, uh as 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 a film rep um or a producer's rep rather, and also as a distributor. And he made a really, his name is Matthias Matt Gertz. And he made a really good point, which was film. The film industry is a business like any other, mm-hmm. except there's one thing at play that a lot of other businesses don't have. And that's notoriety and fame. Right. And right. so you do have, you have filmmakers like myself who are like, yeah, I want to be in a $1 bin, you know? <laughs> and so they're, right. they're willing to like lose the whole budget of the, of the film. Um, on the notoriety of having it available out there right? and just having it seen. And so, yeah, it's, it's, you really can take us for a ride if you want. Right. <laughs> no, it's, it's uh yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean that, that whole, that whole scenario wrapped up. Um, unfortunately it, when, when I bought film threat from Chris in 2010, uh, pretty much at that point, the DVD had been dead for a while and that's when I officially proclaimed it dead. Yeah, because I wasn't. I mean, it's 2010. It, 
DVDs dead everywhere. There's no way. Yeah. I mean, there's still DVD out there, but I, I buy Blu-ray. You know what I mean? So it's. You know what I notice? I'm going to throw this in. Okay. When I when I go to like a there's a there's obviously no video stores, but right. um there's there's like Movie Stop, you know, which is like GameStop. Mm-hmm. Um, there it's owned by the same company. There's one. It, it, I I live in the Boston area, and there's one nearby. And when I go there, I see. It's it, it's it's a lovely little video store. It has tons of Blu-rays and tons of DVDs, and so I like to go. Right. It's got two kinds of people. It's got um, fat nerds like myself who are buying out all the old stock. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got old people looking for the zookeeper. <laughs> and it's got nobody in between. It's well, got that's, nobody that's nobody who actually wants to watch movies like a normal they, person. If they rented porn, you'd have three types. Mm. I actually made that joke to the cashier. I was like, so you have a porn section like the, you know, like the old video stores. And they were like, you know, we actually have a lot of old people come in here and ask if there's a back area. I was yep. like, get the fuck out of here. They like, how do they, how do they ask that question? They were like, they ask, do you have a back area? <laughs> yeah. No, the, the thing there's, there's two, there's two types of, uh, there's two types of people who would rent porn when I, when I worked at a video store and later when I managed, managed it. And these, um, these people are the shy people. Yep. Who they come in and you know they're going to make a sprint for the back room, but <laughs> but they won't do it if there's someone else in the store. So they spend all their time in like the the back catalog drama section cuz it's close to the back room oh, and awesome. you're like you're like dude, you're not even reading the boxes. I know where you're going. <laughs> it's upside so down. Like, you can sense them when you work in the store, you know. And then the other ones are the ones that are so freaking cavalier about it that it's off-putting for you. Yeah. Uh, like working the counter. Like these are the guys that come up with the box or the the cover art or whatever, and they throw it on the counter, and they're like, "Hey, man, you see this one yet?" Oh my god! You know, like that sort of thing. Or, <laughs> "Hey, did you, do you have you know blah blah blah?" And I saw the last two. Yeah, I'm like, really? We're, we're sequelizing? I'm like, I don't think that's how porn works. <laughs> I missed the first. Like, one. I don't think the story is continuing. Maybe <laughs> I'm wrong. Franchising. Yeah, yeah maybe a, a, a what was it? A, a wet dream on Elm Street has a. Has a series that I don't know about or yank my doodle. It's a dandies was always my favorite. <laughs> you know, the first wet dream on Elm Street was was dark and and realistic. <laughs> but then it just became jokey. Yeah, it got all campy. <laughs> uh, so uh, so you acquire Film Threat in 2010. You decided to you were like, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to roll the dice here and uh, and get into this hard. Well, it was it was the sort of thing where I was um, I'd actually been away from Film Threat for about a year at that point because mm-hmm. uh, in 2009. 2008, 2009 is when I met my current wife and she was finishing up veterinary school in New Zealand. And I moved out to New Zealand for that for 2009 to be there with her since it was her last year in school. And and while when I started, I was still doing kind of the uh, the editor in chief film threat role. It became very clear as screening schedules differed in New Zealand than they did here that I I couldn't really keep up. And, and the other problem is you're in New Zealand. So it's not like you're getting all the independent movies that are being sent to the office. Like not at all, just, yeah. It's it's just to do that. It's it's like a fifty dollar package for like two movies. So mm-hmm. it, it just it was impractical. So basically, I was kind of literally on an island, and because uh, New Zealand is two of them, and just sitting there and kind of like, well, so I, I stepped away from Film Threat. I, I stopped for a year, and over the course of that year, Film Threat had a couple editors like Don Lewis edited for a while, um, Matt Sereno edited for a while, but then um, it, I think it was like November 2009, uh, the server had an issue and basically Film Threat went offline mm-hmm. and it stayed offline. And when I got back to the States, my wife, we, we got married on New Year's in Las Vegas 2010 by Darth Vader. 
and uh, it, was, it was it was awesome. Um, at that point, I I was back in the states, and I was I was talking to Chris, and he had he had informed me that at Sundance he was going to, because the fourth edition of his book, he was having a book signing, and then um he was going to announce that Film Threat was going away indefinitely. And based on kind of what I knew about it, I knew that uh, indefinitely probably meant, you know, forever. Right. You know, I'm not saying it it definitely would have stayed gone, but it it from, from just based on the feeling of it, that's it was what feeling like, that way. was happening. Yeah. yeah. And so over the course of the, the Sundance Film Festival, I kind of, you know, thought about it and talked to my wife about it and this, that, and the other thing and kind of pitched the idea to Chris of what if I bought it and instead of an announcement that you're closing it, the announcement is that I'm buying it and, you know, predict taking over. Because at that point, I'd had, I'd been working with Film Threat, even with the year off, and working with Film Threat like eight or nine years. So a lot of people knew me too. And so it wasn't going to be that strange that I was the one who kind of was taking over the reins of Film Threat. As editor-in-chief, a lot of times you become the face of Film Threat as a point person anyway. Right. It's only the it's only the readers who, you know, who saw Chris as the face of Film Threat. The kind of the behind-the-heat-scene stuff, like Chris was very rarely asking people like, oh, make sure I get to talk to them. You know, it was very yeah. much like you run it, whatever. Um, so, I mean, the, the, all the work had kind of been done there. It was just a matter of rebuilding the site. That's why we didn't launch until the end of February. And, um, and yeah, so film threat came back with me as owner and, uh, it was more like the end of February, 20, 2010. So you follow festival schedules, Sundance, obviously, um, outside of those kind of traditional, um, yeah, you know, outlets for independent film. What else do you do? I know, I know, obviously, from my own experience that you, uh, that the filmmakers can submit uh, yep. films for review. And what yep. else? I mean, that's that's the the submission thing is actually probably the the bulk of the the stuff that I watch nowadays. Um, the the festival stuff it ebbs and flows, and and I don't go to every festival. Uh, Sundance is a given. Sundance and Slam Dance because they're at the same time. Sure. Um, South by it's the, the same thing. Um, and then there's a, kind of the the middle to the smaller festivals. You try to mix it up every year. On um, the last two or three years, actually, I've I've been asked to be a, a festival jury member for a lot of fests, and so that's kind of changed the dynamic a bit as far as like what I do. Because before you would go to a festival to watch a bunch of movies and write about them. And when you're a jury, you go to a festival to watch, watch a bunch of movies. But you can't necessarily write about them because that's not very nice. Yeah. You know, yeah. like. Well, so then what does it do for the traffic to the I mean, does it, it how does that help film threat when you're a juror? Yeah, I'm really bad about what helps film threat. <laughs> like, I, I don't I, I'll be the first to admit that a lot of times my thinking isn't what will make film threat better. A lot of it is what kind of will help a filmmaker be easier on a filmmaker or what will, yeah. And, and maybe that's because maybe that's because I, you know, am or have a background in filmmaking yep. and I kind of see how it is, but a lot of, a lot of decision-making processes come towards along those lines. And and so for the juror thing, it's about, you know, Oh, well, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to see these movies. We're going to give an award to somebody. Um, I'm helping the festival out. Because I mean, the festival's there, and I'm going to say, "Hey, I'm a juror at the festival," and then I'm going to do a podcast and talk about yeah. the movies I saw, and I'm going to talk about the festival. And so, I don't necessarily think that it it broadens my audience. I think my audience stays what my audience is, but my audience is a very niche. Yeah, well, I think I, mean? I, th I think what it does is it. Uh, I mean, what it sounds like it does is that because. They're, they're, they follow the tone of film threat. They right. they like the people who are involved in film threat, right. and and that means what what you know you're sort of perpetuating um, 
uh, this this culture of of helping other filmmakers get seen, right? Um, um, consistently. Yeah, I mean it. It would be real easy, super easy for us to jump in, and this is not and this is not meant as a criticism to slash film, yeah. but it would be super easy to jump in and do something like what slash film does, like report, report news, you know, uh, about kind of the more mainstream stuff, you know, run trailers and all that sort of thing. Like it, it would be easy to do that. A lot of people do that. That's a lot of people start that way because that's what they know. Um, but again, one, that's not my interest. And two, it's it's kind of like I don't see it, – it's the 80-20 rule, right? Like 80% of the media covers 20% of what's actually out there. Yep. So I'm trying to focus on the the 80%. Well, why am I going to why am I gonna go to Film Threat if I can go to Slash Film for the well, same exactly. content? Exactly. But that's but I mean, like, look at the look at the, the web and film websites. And isn't that the case? Like, really, besides, you know, ain't it cools on the decline? Yep, um, it sure is, isn't it? I didn't even think about that till just now. I, mean, I, it, I used to check there like daily and that just stopped. Well, that's the thing. Like, um, I have this theory. It's called industry inertia. Mm -hmm. And it's where we just go through kind of uh, the motions of things we've been doing for years because we've been doing them for years. Yes. And I think checking certain websites is like that. And I think that Ain't It Cool News was kind of caught in that industry inertia thing where people just kept checking and people just kept checking and people just kept checking. And then one day they stopped. Yeah. And and the website didn't necessarily evolve along that that timeline. And I mean, and who knows, maybe it'll be the same thing with Film Threat. Um, but it – well, there was also a lot of other stuff going on with Ain't It Cool. If you read that article, I can't remember if it was in The Hollywood Reporter or, or where it was, but there's a lot of behind-the-scenes kind of financial distress they were yeah. going through, unfortunately. I have to see that. Yeah, it, it yeah, there there was a I think they're okay now, but it was it was I guess it was bleak there for a couple of years and no one no one knew about it. Yeah. But that that explains a lot actually. But I think now the the same people who were frequenting Ain't It Cool are now frequenting Slash Film. Mm -hmm. And and the thing is they're frequenting Slash Film and the generations coming up don't know Ain't It Cool. They don't know where the name Ain't It Cool came from. I mean I people don't know to be perfectly honest, it's not like people know film threat everywhere I go. Like they, they really don't. Um, but it's, I mean, it's really not much different. It's just about, again, they don't know it, but because our niche is so niche that the same people kind of perpetuate it, whether it be the, the readers or the writers or even, you know, the filmmakers that, that submit to it. Like I don't, while I get new filmmakers who have never heard of film threat submitting films, um, more times, obviously they have heard, otherwise they wouldn't know to submit, you know, or wouldn't think that that's a good idea. Well, you know, it, it, it carries the name it carries. It, it um, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, so you, um, you ask for a ten dollar fee for submitting films to to Film Threat, and Correct. and and here's what I think. And, and you write a very kind of colloquial reason for that, and the, the the informal language even helped me make sure that it wasn't something that I shouldn't do because it was that's like okay, you know, it's a it's a there's a reason behind this. I, I don't know how to write formally, so that's part of it. <laughs> Maybe that's just what it is. Um, yeah. But no, it sounded like a human being behind it was going. Here's why I'm doing this, um, right. and and it made a lot of sense. Uh, in, in as much as if it's the difference between you, know, you watch a lot of fucking films, I bet. Oh yeah, I I, I actually I try to watch three a day. Three a goddamn day. Mm -hmm. uh, I you know that that that's too, you know I would just end up wanting to burn the art form if I did three a day. You know what? The, the thing is, though, you have days like that. Really? <laughs> but it's completely content related. Like, yeah. Yeah. like you see three shitty movies in a row. Yeah, you feel that way. But <laughs> I, I, I'd have to say, like, 
based on the submission system and a lot of the ideas that were in there as far as like the the quality of the submissions being better um it has worked yeah like the movies are better the quality of the movies that are being submitted to us are are above the board better than they were five years ago. That's it. And you know, so it's it's kind of like, hey, look, like for 10 bucks, which is a fraction, you know, it, it, that that's a, a third of the cheapest film festival submissions. Right. To have publicized in in, in whatever capacity film threat can do, um, right. uh, a look at your film. You're not going to guarantee a good review or a bad review. Right. Um, you're going to review it. But, but, but what it means, to me, it's the difference between you reviewing it and you not reviewing it. If you right. didn't have the $10 submission, you probably wouldn't have open calls for submissions. Right. Well, I mean, we, we did, we did have open calls for submissions for the third, the 13 years. Yeah. Um, and change prior, but it, what was happening is, is a lot of times it, you still didn't wind up seeing the movies because all the small independent distributors with DVD labels would send you their entire run. And I, and I, and I say this in the, you know, the, the frequently asked questions about that is, yeah. you know, we'd get sent, you know, fist, film festival level programming submissions weekly. So one, we couldn't keep up Two, we the writers weren't getting paid to watch them. Right. And review them. So you had this uh, scenario where basically the writers were burning out on all these films that were being sent in, many of which don't need reviews. They already have distribution, in my opinion. You know, like, I don't even know, like, like why you want us to review the DVD that you're already selling to people. Right. Like, like everything's done. Like there's nothing I'm going to say in a review that really is going to make much of a difference. Maybe it makes, you know, like the filmmakers are done with the film at this point. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like who exactly is reading this review? Yep. You know, it's not like it's a comment on Amazon. So basically it's, it, it just became this thing where we were getting inundated with films. We couldn't keep up. The writers were getting burned out. They weren't getting paid. And it was like, but. My thing is like, I don't want to be a gatekeeper in the sense that I don't want to be the guy that says we're only going to review these movies. Yeah. Like we're only going to review a film that has distribution. We're only going to review a film that's playing a festival. Like I was like, I like gems came through that process. Mm-hmm. You know, it was in a pile, but there were gems in there. I mean, that's, and, you have a tremendous attitude about it because it goes back to like seeing clerks and being like, oh, you don't have to have a golden key. And right. and, and this is you perpetuating film threat to you know be that kind of publication right and i mean it just and for very practical reasons it had to change it couldn't be the way it was and the idea of a fee and in my mind the fee was very simple it was 10 bucks for online 12 for mail-in and and then the idea was because mail-in i have to mail the movie to a writer so that extra two bucks covers postage yep um, and that way, the money that comes in, the writers can actually make money for reviewing the movies. And also, you know, the, the site server can get a little bit of cash to keep the site online. Um, and also, I mean, the quality of the films went up. People just weren't sending us any old thing. A, distribu- a distributor of 18 movies isn't going to send all 18 to you because they're like, holy shit, that's almost $200. Right. You know, like we're not going to spend two hundred dollars. Our movie's already out. Why do we need a review? And it's like exactly. It used to be free to just be like whatever. They can just they they, they won't review. Yeah. They won't review, and they will. You know, it's just yeah. it's free for me to ask. And now it's not free yeah. to ask. Yeah, no. It, but the thing is, that now it's like now we will review. Like we definitely. It's very rare. There's only been a few instances where I've refunded a review or refused to review something, and they've been good reasons. But yeah. um, 
it's it's the sort of thing where like if you if you submit to us and and do the fee, it's like we we do the review. But again, the other thing to point out, and as you did point out, is that it it's you're you're, you're paying for a service to get your film reviewed. You're not paying for the review, which right. means you're not paying for the content of the review. Um, I've had people write me after a review that was less than flattering, and be like, "Can you take this off the site?" And it's like, "Well, no. Like that's not like that's if all we did was take off the negative reviews." Basically, you're paying for good reviews, which is not what we're doing. Like, that's part of the risk if you feel – but, I mean, like, you know, you're a filmmaker. No filmmaker is going to send something in thinking their movie sucks. Right. I mean, what it, what it did do is is it forced me to look into – I'm not going to spend $10. I don't want to spend $10 on a bad review. Right. Um, I will if I have to. I'm actually – you know, your, your opinion – even a bad one is almost worth ten dollars to me, because <laughs> uh, uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, but it, uh, I would rather, you know, re- kind of like how I research festivals, and I say, "Is this film right for your festival?" Right. Uh, I, I research the site and go, "You know what? I think these guys might dig this movie," um, right. and I think it, it's it's just the kind of site that could say nice things about it and help me with the future of the movie. So, uh, it, it, but had it not been ten dollars, maybe it's just another one that I just send along and send along and send along. So, right, yeah, it it it, it, it helped in that way. Well, I mean, I again, I don't really look around because I'm extremely busy with this one. But it's like, what? How many? I mean, how many of those options are out there for people to, where you can just send your stuff for review? No. I mean, are you are you pretty much like machine gunning the bigger sites, or like how does that work? No, I mean, I just I go to small stuff that that's that it helps their site to talk right. about my movie. Okay. Um, that's way that's way more easy. Um, but in in a situation like the bigger sites aren't going to do it. I could ask and they right. wouldn't respond. But you're a, I, I would I would call you a medium sized company or at least a somewhat notorious site. Um, right. We have the history. I mean, we're, we're coming up on thirty years, right? Of exactly. existence. So, I mean, what it, the, the, that ten dollars went further for me because you liked the movie. Thank God. Right. Um, that that ten dollars went further for me than a lot of the film festival submissions that I sent in because we uh, the the places that it did screen ended up screening you know five or six times they all grabbed quotes from that film threat review and mm. really really none of the others so uh, oh, there you go it was also it was also good writing I think that was part of it um, well well thank you it, it was good movie making so that actually made my life easier <laughs> well thank you that, that that that's the idea I'm trying to make good movies <laughs> uh, well that, that I like I'm helping I'm helping uh. I'm basically answering questions for another writer who's doing an article. I think it's camera, if it's movie maker or filmmaker, it's one of those two. And, uh, it's the sort of thing where it's like, how can people get their film seen at festival festival by more writers like that yeah. kind of thing. And, and like, part of me just wants to be like, make a good movie. Like right. I don't, like, I don't, I don't know how to play the game. Cause again, it's always going to be the 80, 20 thing. And it's just, that's just how it is. Like, I don't, but at least someone will focus on your thing. Eventually, like, if you make a good movie, it'll find its spot. Like I, I, I truly firmly believe that. I don't believe that good movies just suffer somewhere in oblivion with no one who will appreciate them ever seeing them. Like I feel like you, you your movie will be seen by someone who will really appreciate it. Yeah. And it, it'll it'll be you know, we've we got our we got our share of really fun, heartwarming experiences over this film. Right. Uh so the big one for me was Sydney, uh the Sydney Underground Film Festival. Yeah. They ended up um they were like super they flew us out and stuff. Um or no, they didn't fly us out, but they, they, they put us up for four nights. Right. Um, which was just so sweet of them. And it was that was really weird because they uh, it, it you know 
the audiences I really didn't know. I mean, I really right. didn't know anybody in Australia. And right. so it's and, and they they took a totally different perspective, which was like I guess over there, the only way you work in the film industry is if you work for the film industry. Like the the concept yeah. of people just running around with cameras making movies doesn't really exist. A lot of stuff's connected with the government too. It, it, well, exactly. And yeah. um, and so here in Boston, when I was like, I made this for like two thousand bucks, everybody was like, that's not well. Then then fuck you. Like if if I had told them it was two hundred and fifty thousand, they would have been like, ooh, how did you raise the funds? But right. uh, <laughs> but when I told them the truth about the the budget, that made them not want to watch it. When I told the Australians like this was made for two thousand dollars, they like burst into applause. They thought that was fantastic. So it was kind of an interesting cultural divide there. Yeah, my my thing about the budget is always talk about it after. Yes, uh, that's don't what you ever do. don't ever talk about it before someone sees it because if I, I have people who. You know, and it's rare. Again, the quality of submissions has, has risen considerably. But every once in a while, you'll be like, I made this movie for 500 bucks yeah. with two of my friends. And then you watch it and you'd be like, it looks like you made this movie for 500 bucks with two of your friends. Yeah. And I'm putting movie in quotations because it looks like you just put your two friends in front of a camera and yep. had them, you know, unconvincingly speak to each other. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, and, and I'm not saying that you started it, but maybe there was a seed planted there. Um, I mean, I've been getting... Uh, I don't know. I think the last week I've seen like two or three films from Australia that are more of that kind of DIY oh, really? aesthetic. So, um, yeah, I mean, because that's the other thing with film threat and submissions. They come from everywhere. Like it's not just the U.S. Like we get from Europe, obviously now Australia. Um, and I, I just pray for uh, <laughs> subtitles when it comes from like really far because you never know. Like sometimes you'll get it. You'll be like, ah, I really wish it had subtitles. Well, so here's the here's the real question. Because of the ten dollar submission. Mm -hmm. Do you feel an obligation to watch it beginning to end? I would watch it beginning to end. Regardless. You got oh, regardless. Okay, regardless. I don't. I don't. I don't. Dude, I'm like that in the theater. I'm. I'm like that with everything. I'm with that with the uh, shitty movies on TV. Like the only the only times <laughs> I break away from a shitty movie on TV if I haven't seen it. It's one thing if I've seen it, then I'll flip around. But uh, if, if I haven't seen it, the only reason I'll break away is like if a Flyers or a Phillies game is on or something. And then it's just like, well, this will be on repeat in a month. You know what I mean? Like that, that's a different <laughs> scenario. But like as far as movies, when I sit down to watch kind of an independent film, I don't I don't, you know, kind of half ass it. I watch the watch the whole thing from beginning to end. And uh, and and just to you know connect this to Rex Reed here for a second, um, I won't. If I don't see something from beginning to end for whatever reason, like perhaps I fainted, yeah, I don't review the movie. Really? <laughs> even, oh wow! Even even if I miss like twenty seconds, I won't review a movie. I will pause. I will do whatever. Like I will not like not pay attention and then and then decide. Oh, I'm going to write a review. I mean, I, I'll admit that there's some movies where you can be paying attention and your mind will still numb, but that's a different experience than not paying attention attention altogether. And I don't. I feel that. Whether or not there was a fee involved, um, filmmakers respect or deserve uh, the respect of having their movie seen from beginning to end. And and just a, a kind of a quick anecdote about that: like one filmmaker sent me his movie, and I saw it, and it, it was a, it was a kind of a rambling piece, kind of absurd. But they were very very young filmmakers, and uh, I saw good things in it, and I, I wrote about the good things in it, and you know said these are the things I felt you know should have been stronger and what have you, mm -hmm. and uh, and. I don't know, but two, three months later, they sent me the same movie. They submitted it again. And so I emailed the filmmaker and said, hey, did you accidentally submit to us twice? If you did, I'll refund your money. You know, whatever. Like, it happens. Don't worry about it. And they're like, no, no, no. We did a different cut of the movie. 
and we want you to look at it again. I was oh, like, wow. oh, okay. So I'm like, all right. So I did. I sat down. I watched it again, and it was a better cut. There was still some things I felt could have been better, but the things that I felt could have been better, because the first one was so rambling, they were, like, very obvious what they were. And so, like, I was very... I felt very detailed in my review for the second one because I felt at this point now I'm like reviewing a script almost. Yeah. It's like now, now I'm going to have to give way more specific feedback because now obviously they're giving me a completely new draft. So what do I still not think is working? So I was able to kind of pinpoint what it was that was bothering me. And so I pinpointed it and I wrote it a pretty detailed review about like the stuff that if certain sequences were either removed altogether or just kind of like fixed in a certain way, like the thing would actually flow really well and it would come in around like, between I think 70 to 80 minutes would be like, and it would be a strong, it would be absurd. Uh, It still wasn't acquired taste. I mean, these guys shot it kind of with their handicaps, what have you, Mm -hmm. but it was, it was a better film in my opinion. And, uh, their response to that was apparently when I watched it the second time, YouTube logged that I only watched 10 minutes of it, Mm. even though I'd seen the whole thing. And so the filmmakers accused me of not watching the entire movie and even with all the feedback in the review said I could have figured that out by jumping around because YouTube just said I watched 10 minutes. It didn't say which 10 minutes. Right. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, like I'm going to sit down with a movie and jump around in the movie to add up to 10 minutes and write a review. Like it was the most absurd thing I ever heard. I was like, I cannot believe. And, and if for filmmakers who are listening to this, the last thing you want to do, unless you are 100% certain, is accuse someone of not doing their job. Like, right. basically, this is the sort of thing, if I found out one of my writers did this, they would never write for Film Thread again. Mm-hmm. And if I'm nice, I won't remove everything else they've already written from the site. Like, that's how much of a wipe it would happen if someone fucked up that bad. Yeah, you're pretty principled so, about that. So, it, it, to be, and again, I'm like, it's a young filmmaker, and I'm like, dude, you know what, I'm like, I'm easily one of the uh, the nicer guys you're going to deal with on something like this and you're wrong and no matter how many times i told him that wasn't the case and that i'm like guess what youtube is wrong <laughs> you know like i don't know what to do i don't know what to do to convince you if the review didn't convince you if i'm not convincing you now it's just like but uh this is one of those cases where i'm like just you know whatever i i have your name now i'm not going to be looking at stuff you yeah, do that's the end it's of that, that simple yeah. You're, you're like motherfucker i have to watch face off all the way through if it's on tv i watched your whole movie <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I watched Sharknado when I came into it. <laughs> yeah, right. It, but that, but that was a sort of like that. It's a rarity, like I said, it's rare when stuff like that happens. But it was such a, I couldn't. It was such a hard logic. Like I couldn't figure out how someone would write a review for something they didn't watch, even if they'd seen it before. Like, but it was a new cut. Like it's just, it's just what you. That's your job. That's it's, what you do. It's fucked up because I mean, you took a second look at it. I mean, that alone, I think they were kind of. Uh, at least if it was me, if I was the filmmaker, I would have, uh, I would have hesitated to send you a second cut. That that feel. Right. But the fact that you were like, okay, yeah, I'll take a second look at it is like anything you get from that point on. It, at least in my cautious, I don't want to disturb you. I don't want to inconvenience you. Mind. <laughs> right. Um, to me, that's like a, like, hey, he took a second look at it, even right. if it was the ten minutes. Well, the thing is, the thing is, it's like I found, and again, the second look at it is you're able to be a little more detailed with your criticism sure. because the, the the first pass through there's a bunch of different things going on but when you know that they're working on stuff and then you watch it and you see that they did change things you know like okay i can move those criticisms i had to the side 
and I can look at how does this second cut work? Yeah. And where is the second cut having trouble? And again, maybe this comes from the editor background, but it's like, okay, this is where the second cut could be even better. Yep. You know, so it's the same thing. It, you're still watching it as a, a new movie. I, I have a feeling that if they hadn't made the changes they'd made in the first cut, there'd be no sense. And I'm again, I'm giving them credit, you know, like for this the second cut because it was a good review too that I got accused of not watching the movie all the way through. So I'm like, God, shit, I wonder what happened if I'd have panned it. Yeah, really. But but uh, it, it's just it's one of those things where. I don't know. It, this is a good time to tell any filmmakers that if you're going to submit to film threat, don't give us a first draft or a first cut um, because uh, give us the cut you would want an audience to see or that you would want, you know, emblematic of what your film is. Because I think what, as you kind of pointed out with the festivals, it's like film threat, we're, we're, we're a small site, but or a medium site, however you want to look at it. But we are. We, we have kind of the history where people do look to us and look yes. to what we write. And um, for I heard for a while there, IMDb wouldn't even accept a film if they didn't have a review from a site like us. Not just us specifically, but a site like us. In that class. Yeah. In that class. And um, so it's one of those things where like, particularly if you're a small film and you're, you haven't played festivals yet or you're, you're, you're gearing up, it's like what we say will have an impact to a certain extent. So if you want to lessen that impact, just wait, you know, like you don't, we don't have to be the first eyes that see your movie and we don't have to be the first voice that, that cheers out about your movie. It's like, finish your film to the best that you can finish it to where you're putting it out in public and you're feeling good about that. And then if you want us to look at it, great, but don't, if, if you send me a movie and be like, we didn't finish the sound mix, we didn't finish the video mix, we or, you know, the color correction, uh, this scene's going to be missing, and you give us all these conditions on it, I'm like, well, why are you sending it to us? And those are, that's another case where I'll be like, uh, how about I just refund your money, and you when you have that, all these things done, then you send it to us. Yeah. Because it's not like I can't see above it. I can. You know, I, I've seen a lot of rough cuts in my life, but I don't think that's that's what you want to represent your film with. No, like it's just it's just patience. And I understand from the filmmaking standpoint, you finished your movie, you want to get it out there, you want to be done with it, you want to be on to the next stage, maybe you have a new idea, or maybe you're just so sick and tired of watching this fucking one over and over again that you're just like, ah, I just want anything, you just want it to move forward as fast as possible. Most films, you know, their life is two years, you know, whether it's festival circuit distribution, it's a two year, no matter how you shake it. Yep. And um, it's hard to be patient for that, that two years. But if you are patient and you time it right, you can get the best word, the best screenings, and kind of the ultimately the best outcome. Um, but there is no magic bullet. It's great advice. Uh, and I, I mean, I would probably extend that to any, any, um, really any review site. Uh, you know, I, I, I would send, I would send to reviewers at the same time you're sending to festivals. Right. Um, the, the, what the version you want audiences to see should be the versions that, the version that reviewers see, I would think. Um, tell us about, uh, uh, what's going on right now, um, at film threat. Like it's July, 2013, uh, kind of where you are and tell us about your podcasts and, and what else you want us to take a look at on the site. Sure. Well, I mean, anything, anything film threat really just go to filmthreat.com. And it, and I know that I, my nose, I can sound kind of nasally sometimes. So it's actually film threat and not a uh, thread. We're not, uh, <laughs> yeah. Because I get that all the time. Um, and uh, filmthreat.com, uh, right now, mostly it's it's uh, it's film reviews of movies that similar to what we've been talking about. Um, festival coverage, Fantasia, International Film Festival in Montreal, kicks off this week. 
uh, coming up and and there's going to be coverage from that. Um, the Film Threat podcast you can get through through iTunes and you can also get through filmthreat.com. You guys are uh, just chatting about what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, it's mostly it's me and uh, me and Don Lewis, uh, contributor editor Don Lewis, who is also who's also a filmmaker in his own right. Um, and we basically we, we talk about it's 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 about as informal as this is. Yeah. Though I would argue that this conversation makes a lot more sense than anything we say on the Film Threat podcast. Gotcha. But uh, <laughs> it's just it's just kind of it's just kind of fun. It's our perspective. We we talk about the movies that we see, the movies we don't see, um, kind of the, the state of film writing, that sort of thing. It, it, it's all extremely informal. And um, I mean, I don't have any Comic Cons coming up too, but I'm not I'm not attending Comic Con this year. It, so there's 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 the daily coverage that always happens. There's nothing particularly special going on at this time of year. Um, but also, uh, twitter.com slash film threat or facebook.com slash film threat. Um, it's, it's easy to find us. And, uh, but film threat.com is, is the place to start. And uh, if you, if you are a filmmaker and you want to submit your movie, check it out. If it's for you, if it's not for you, you know, that's, that's your business. No one's twisted your arm on this one. <laughs> Take a look at the uh, site. It's, it, it's, but uh, we're here. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's a lot of, I mean, if you're like me, you love, Talking about movies, staying current with what's out there, looking at things that you don't normally get to see. It's kind of a one-stop shop for that. And uh, if if you can't tell from this conversation, this is exactly the kind of guy uh, that you want out there reviewing independent movies, giving them chances, watching them all the way through, uh, and and giving 50 lashings to anybody who doesn't watch them all the way through. That's the kind of people we want uh, in the independent film uh, media why thank you. <laughs> so Mark, thanks for thanks for talking to me. It was really a lot of fun to talk to you and and to meet you and thank you. Thank you.